Comics Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan. And DigitalOcean. Go to digitalocean.com and use the promo code Here's the Thing, all one word like you're slurring it, and spin up your own Linux rig for free. And Linux Academy. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and invest in your mind while saving some money. Welcome to Linux Action Show episode 418. My name is Chris. My name is Noah. Hey, Noah, guess what? Big show today. Coming up on this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, Just Ask Noah. It's one of the number one questions that gets sent into the show. Virtualization, it's a big topic, and the big show is going to try to do it some justice with a high-level overview, a how-to segment, and even some easy buttons you could press for even that coveted hardware pass-through virtualization. <laughs> what? Yeah, we'll tell you all about it in this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. And then in the news segment, mm, girl, Chromebooks just old sold those Mac Mm, shoot. We'll tell you what that means and why I'm saying it like that. Also, Fedora has some interesting but maybe potentially delayed good news. We'll tell you about that. LM sensors might be on its way out. And Mycroft has an update for all of us, even if you're not a backer. And then we've got some great feedback. But before all of that, Noah, we have... The picks. Not just the picks. Picks that are so the damn good. Picks. I wanted to stretch it out over multiple episodes. But, uh, you know, when you got good stuff, you just got to run with it. You can't hold it back. You can't hold the good stuff back. So we've got double picks coming up in this week's episode. A awesome spotlight. And it all starts with a runs Linux that claims to be the world's first dirt, deep derp learning. <laughs> Derp learning. <laughs> derp learning. I love it. The world's first derp learning supercomputer in a box. <laughs> okay, which is great because I'm about to play a clip for you where they say the word deep learning about a thousand times. So every time they say deep learning, <laughs> think derp learning. I think that'd be great. So this is the DGX1, and it's a monster. And instead of me explaining it to you, I don't have a leather jacket, so I'll let NVIDIA's CEO explain it to you. That's and your, they are the go. early adopters. They're the data scientists. Data They're the researchers. Researchers. And they need something now. So we decided to build the most advanced computer that anyone has ever built. For derp learning. <laughs> we decided to build the NVIDIA DGX1, the world's first deep learning supercomputer. Derp. <laughs> I love that. Now, hold on. Everybody just has to clap for a second before it you... It is engineered top to bottom for deep learning. <laughs> it's 170 teraflops in a box. Uh-huh. On a rack, it's two petaflops. Damn, son. A two petaflops computer for deep learning. Mm-hmm. Has eight GPUs, eight Tesla P100s, organized in a hybrid cube mesh. It accelerates all the major AI frameworks. There you go, the NVIDIA DGX1. And now he didn't say it there in the video. I, I still don't understand what it is. It's a derp learning uh, box. Uh, it's yeah. derp learning initiative in a box. Oh. But uh, BSD Now producer Mr. Q5Sys did a little uh, sleuthing and discovered that it does indeed run Ubuntu LTS. I have the uh, spec sheet linked in the show notes. Yeah, you know, uh, derp learning, Noah, come on. Yeah, See, right. Look, here, I'll explain more. The densest computing node ever made. 3,200 watts, eight GPUs, organized in a hybrid cube mesh. Yeah, man. Getting data in and out of this machine, because it processes data so fast, is vitally important. And so we have seven terabytes of streaming SSDs. Bam! We have quad InfiniBand. 
and dual 10 gigabit Ethernet. Are you impressed? Connected I, together, this is one beast the, of a machine. The specifications are amazing. Uh -huh. I guess my question is, it's like, uh -huh. I feel like I'm back in high school math class where they're explaining, and like I, I understand what? Like the information they're telling me. Yeah. I just... I, what do I, what can I do with it? Explain something I can do with it. You can do derp learning. Everybody, yeah, I just said right. that like a million times, dude. I said it a million yeah, times. I know, I know. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Buzzwords are strong yeah. with this one. No, derp I, learning is important. Here, uh, yeah. you, you can just. Awesome. Oh, uh, I would play this video for you. But this is you can hear the video. Good day is. to everyone online. Uh, my name is John Barker. I'm a solution architect with Nvidia. The audio is not so good, but uh, derp learning is basically a way to uh, train and program an AI. Uh, to give an AI a lot of input and information, so you could have an AI for automated car driving, something like that, and you have to actually teach it. And you have to give it input and, and something for it to analyze. And so you do that with derp learning. You put a lot of information in there, and then it does a lot of derp analysis. And after it comes back with its derp results, you've programmed an AI. And what could go wrong, dude? What could go wrong? Nothing could go wrong, right? Yeah, I... I uh, when when I see it in practice, maybe uh, maybe I'll have more of a reaction. Oh, I'm really impressed. Yeah, yeah. You could pick one up. Uh, of course, it's it's it's. You know how expensive it is. This is how expensive it is. It's so expensive. It's one of those products you don't get to see the price. You just have to go <laughs> fill out some contact information, and then they'll call you. <laughs> and then, yeah. and if and if you're I, asking how much, I, it's too much. I'm I'm that guy. I'm that dick that emails those companies or calls them or whatever. And then their sales rep comes in and, and I stop them right when they call and I'm like, listen, I have no intention of buying it and I don't want to hear your sales pitch. I seriously just want to know the price. And since you didn't put it on the website, now you can tell me. All right. I'm the guy that says that. So here, here is the uh, here's the real numbers for you, just to make you feel better, okay? Because I know you're having a hard time with this. Because if you want to know, like, if you wanted to say do some derp learning with like your i7 in your desktop, okay, mm -hmm. it would take you, let's say. Uh, they say here 150 hours between 6 and 25 days for this type of training that they're doing in this benchmark. But with the derp learning NVIDIA rig, it only takes two hours for that same rig. You see, you might have, like, if you have a high-end CPU, like, say you have, like, a Xeon E5-2697, um, you're probably clocking in at three teraflops. Where this derp learning rig is clocking in at 170 teraflops. So that kind of puts it in perspective for you a little bit, doesn't it? Like, this thing has just got a lot of computing power. No? All right. All right. I guess I haven't sold you on one. Well. I'm, I, it, it's, it's very cool. Oh, I can tell you like it. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. super cool. It's super cool. You <laughs> love it. I was also trying to explain it to me. I, 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 I'm, I'm one of those practical per Like, if you're like, more people will switch to Linux because their dr cars will drive Linux or something like that. Or, like, now you will be able to... You know, I don't know. I just, when, when I find like a practical thing, like, but it's powered by Tesla accelerators and it yeah. has a hybrid mesh, Noah. It has a hybrid Great. mesh learning cloud, Noah. It's excellent. Yeah. I'm very happy for it. I really, I am. Yeah. With revolutionary uh, logistics. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I watched that entire video to try to find you guys the most exciting, entertaining moment of the <laughs> keynote, and that was it, what I played. And that was the most exciting moment. Yeah, here, I tell you what, here's what's exciting. It's exciting that when NVIDIA, a company that is yeah. going to make some groundbreaking product that Noah doesn't understand, when that happens, they choose Linux by default. Like, they don't even, it's not running Windows, it's not right. running Mac OS, it's not right. running some right. proprietary right. Mm -hmm. custom-built thing from this yeah. side. They just they put stuff. That is something that, that is, is exciting. That is actually the takeaway here is... NVIDIA has shown so many things now, not all things, but so many things that are Linux first, uh, from the initiatives they're doing with deep learning, I'm sorry, derp learning, the initiatives they're doing with self-driving cars, but also 
just presenting the material up on stage, they're using Ubuntu boxes to demonstrate right. it all up on stage. That's what I right. love about it. See, that's exciting to me. Yeah. That's genuinely, that I'm actually excited about. That whole thing that's was cool. me me taking a poke at NVIDIA a little bit for getting so jargony, but uh, yeah, that's why the derp learning, totally an accident, but I just wonder how I'm going to think of it. It's like I now have that cloud to butt extension in my head for deep learning. That's what I have now is derp learning. I love it. All right, so tell, let me tell you about something else Noah and I both love. That's freaking DigitalOcean. Oh, you want to get deep? Get deep into DigitalOcean. Just use the promo code, here's the thing, all one word, lowercase. Slur it like you're a jerk. Here's the thing. Just put it all together and get a $10 promo over DigitalOcean. The best and simplest way to get your own rig up on their cloud. They have great data centers in all over the world. New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, Toronto. Oh my gosh, they got more on the way. And in less than 55 seconds, you'll get a machine spun up with 512 megabytes of RAM. It's starting at $5, right? 512 megabytes of RAM. 20 gigabyte SSD, because they all SSDs, y'all. All SSDs, y'all. All all up over their SSDs, over their SSDs, where Noah's at SSDs, where I'm at SSDs. DigitalOcean be all SSDs up in this business. And you can get in on that for $10 credits, right? All in that biz using the promo code here's the thing they got a great interface and they have a seriously cool API that we even us over here at this here podcast are taking advantage of and here's another cool tool that takes advantage of that API do snapshot can you guess what that thing does Noah it's called do snapshot got any guesses I'm guessing it takes a picture of your droplet and then emails it to you so you can hang it above your fireplace mantle <sighs> no Damn it, Noah. No, no, it takes a snapshot of your DigitalOcean instance right there. It's a command line snapshot maker for your DigitalOcean droplet. It's fully automated and multi threaded for your pleasure. DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code. Here's the thing. Go check them out. Check out their great interface. They got Ubuntu, they got Fedora, they have Debian, they have CentOS, they have FreeBSD. They make it really easy to add your SSH keys to manage DNS, set up private networking, conduct backups. And the entire thing is powered you know, by the Linux. The other thing that I have missed out on a DigitalOcean up until recently well, is yeah, soon. we recently we set up a service domain, so we've got like you know basically a short URL that we can use to set up all the servers on, and that we have mapped those DNS servers directly to DigitalOcean. And so now when I spin up a droplet, I click on the networking tab and I can just choose the droplet and the the and the A record gets created for me because before I'd have to copy the IP, log into oh, my register, two-factor authentication. Then add, go down to the, the, mm-hmm. the configuration, add the A record, type the AP, paste it in. Girl, and then please. Ain't, ain't nobody got time for that, Noah. Nope. No, that is nope. slick. Yeah, they got a whole bunch of cool stuff, like block storage coming. Great, great, great documentation. Huh? No, I haven't got my view. You? Yeah, and I'm waiting. I'm, I'm oh. on the little early sign-up list. Me or whatever, too, yeah. I'll quiz. Alan Jude has got his own like ideas of what's coming on, and if he if he if he's even half right, I'm going to be freaking excited. Uh, DigitalOcean is a super great platform. The whole thing's Linux based. You support this show by using the promo code. Here's the thing. And other other nice thing about DigitalOcean. Speaking of support, very 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 many open source projects now are getting back end supporting support, like you know for hosting or downloads mm-hmm. or even just web running their website or their blog. On DigitalOcean, Torrent Tracker. There's, I'm thinking of a bunch of different projects. In fact, the next uh, our desktop app pick, the next open source app, we're about to just totally unrelated, uh, host their demos 
on DigitalOcean droplets. Production needs, uh, your own personal needs, the pricing's great. DigitalOcean.com, just use our promo code, here's the thing. Thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. DigitalOcean.com, promo code, here's the thing. So I teased it. I got to show you. I'm super, super, super loving this because it's very shiny. It is called uh, Net Data, and it's mm-hmm. one part server, one part web browser component, written in Rust, I believe, at least parts of it. Um, and it is a very, very, very flashy system overview heads up dashboard. Cow. This is all real-time stats you're looking at. This is my CPU here, uh, and you get an overview of my uh, network out throughput, my disk I.O., but everything's also breaking down into individual categories. So, of course, uh, I can go get individual breakdowns of my CPU usage per core if I want. I could also go get my load average, also my disk usage, things like that. And I can break it down individually, too. Like, I can get the utilization of each CPU core, which <laughs> this rig has a lot of CPU cores, so that's a very particularly cool-looking graph. <laughs> There's all the different interrupts there. Uh, and then I can break it down to the disks. Uh, there's my there's one of my big partitions, which I'm not using very much of right now. Here's SDA, which has a little more activity on it right now. You can see real-time gauges and then charts of what's going on here. Uh, it also will pull in things like uh, your temperature sensors. So here is my temperature charting. For This has all been since I've been running it this morning, early this morning in the studio. Um, and I can get all kinds of information on my uh, network, TCP stats, UDP stats, general packets, error transmits, fragments, broadcasts, multicasts. Now, imagine this running on maybe your droplet, right? On a, a machine you want to know some of this stuff. In fact, here is the uh, the project's example running on a DigitalOcean droplet out of London. And where you can see a lot more CPU load happening. So this is a rig that's actually in production up on uh, DO. And uh, so you can see some serious uh, throughput coming in at different parts when you watch this. They're also, on this one, monitoring MySQL process, uh, processes and Nginx processes. You can plug in other things to this. So look at the visualization here of this Nginx data. Look at that. Active That's connections, requests. I mean, it is it is gorgeous. And the, on the overhead is minimal. You install it on your system. Uh, and, it, and of course, I'm sure as Noah was already assuming, uh, it is available in the AUR. You install it on your system instantaneously if you're using something that has in its repo. You set up the daemon. It will work with all of the defaults if you want. And uh, it by default, can, you can, can connect to it on your local interface. And then it continues to chart and log as you go. <clears throat> It's really cool. Again, it's called Net Data, and uh, you can check it. I have it installed here on the AirMaster machine, which is the machine that I show on air. You know what? The first thing that comes to mind to me is marketability for something like this. Like, if, if I could go, if if I had stuff like this, things that look that pretty, it doesn't matter if the client understands what any of that stuff is. It <laughs> know, just right? looks like we're paying a lot of yeah. attention and yeah. have a sh- ton of information available to us, and we're monitoring a bunch of different things. Isn't like, this interesting too? Like, it gives me little tips. Like, keep an IO, keep an eye on your IO weight. Uh, and right now it shows the current I.O. weight, and I can mouse over and get uh, back snapshots in time of what it was at. If it's constantly high, your disks are bottleneck, and that could be why your system may be slowing down. Another important metric worth watching is your soft IRQs. A constantly high percentage of soft IRQ may uh, indicate network driver issues. Both of mine are very low on this system, but I think it's super cool, dude, that it's just right there to begin with. Mm-hmm. All that, All that open source, free, takes seconds to get set up. It's called net data. Now... This might be too much for you. Maybe you don't want a web app. Maybe you just want to know 
like your basic information. Uh, and and I, I, I encourage you to check this one out, though, because it's very cool. But maybe you just need something a little simpler than that. We have a double pick this week for you guys, for those of you out there that feel this way. It's called NetHog. Now, NetHogs is a very straightforward bandwidth monitor for your terminal. And what I like about it is it's not going to tell you every single little process that you don't care about. This is my sort of not-so-awesome screenshot that I grabbed earlier. Uh, it's going to show you just the top talker. So on my machine, when I took this one, you could see Dropbox was a son of a gun uh, in terms of uh, usage. But also, a lot of curl and simple note. Because while I was working on LAS, I was editing in simple note doing package updates in the background like I do, and chatting on Telegram and using Dropbox to sync files. So you can see all that was all what I was doing on my machine at that time, and they all show up in the top talkers. So NetHogs, very simple, easy to use, and curses-based command line utility. So you're going from something that's like the Cadillac of web applications, as far as heads-up dashboards, to basically bare-bones, and curses, NetHog. So depending on what you want, I got two different options for folks. But Noah, like you were saying, legitimately, if I was like a client of yours and I was having mm -hmm. a meeting with you and I walked in, mm -hmm. in in your office and this was up on like a, a big right. TV screen on your wall, I'd be pretty impressed by that. I'd be like, damn, right. look at him. Exactly. Exactly. You could even made this demo of this droplet. <laughs> in the chat room uh, wants wants to let everyone know that you know 1404 NetHogs is broken. So uh, if you're using Oh, okay. the, the last useful distro of Ubuntu, then uh, it might not work for you. Wow, I, that we are shots are fired today, and we're not, oh, wow. By the way, don't try to do this segment on sixteen oh four. Oh really? Oh really? Oh, the, the segment you did today that we we have oh, a little yeah. the how to coming up for really oh, yeah, that one. Yeah. After I got done, but this is like a server thing we're going to be talking about. Fourteen oh four. Wow. Wow. I didn't expect that to be honest with you for the particular things we're going to be covering. Um. <sighs> Really happy to see this next one coming along. Maybe this is, you know, I mentioned Rust for NetHogs. That might not have been right because I installed two things this morning. And, yeah, you know what? I think I was wrong about, uh, about uh, oh, I'm sorry, about uh, NetData. It is this program that uses Rust. This is the program that's built in Rust, and I'm pretty excited to see it being worked on. Not all of us want something like this, but for those of us out there that do, Lifesaver. System managers that allow you to stop and start processes are super common and obvious for a lot of new users that are coming from Windows. They're used to something like it in Windows, and they get to Linux, and some distributions, like SUSE, have YAS. And they have something in there that kind of does the job. Other ones have something like that, too. Now we have, ourselves, a distribution agnostic system manager for Systemd, which is the distro agnostic uh, init tool, so pretty great. This application is written in Rust and it uses GTK3, and uh, I've installed it here on my desktop. So I will, uh, I'll demo it for you. Instead of just uh, showing you screenshots, I'll, uh, I'll show you the goodness. So I have it installed now. It is, um, as Noah would probably assume, in the Arch user repository. It is. But is there a deb? I don't know about that. Yeah, I don't know about that. It is uh, systemd dash manager dash git if you're in arch. Okay, so I'm entering my uh, super secure root password there. And now I'll bring it up here, and this is the application here. System D Manager, it follows my GTK theme, and you could see if I, like for example, wanted to go down here to NetData, where's NetData? Boom, there's a new NetData uh, real-time monitoring app I just demoed. That's the systemd script that it creates, and you can see it right here. The uh, unit file is super easy. You can pull up the unit journal just for this particular service. You can see the logging just for that service. Isn't that nice when you're trying to do some troubleshooting? There's a toggle right here to toggle it to start at boot or to toggle it off 
and now it doesn't start at boot. You can see the big red stop button. If I press that stop button, NetData would stop recording data. I'll do that right now. And now I have a nice blue start button that I can press, and it starts the service immediately. And now I can go back over here. I can check the log. I can see everything started up just fine. One click away. All of my system deprocesses, one click away. This application has been blowing up right now. I've been seeing more and more people talk about it. So I wanted to get a chance to feature it here for you guys. And uh, it makes it really nice to manage system D services across different distributions that you can get it installed on because that's now sort of becoming this nice universal Linux thing. And now we have this nice universal manager. So not everybody loves themselves. Some people are good with system CTL or whatever. But uh, I think it's kind of nice. Plus, Noah. The other thing I really like about this mm -hmm. is if you're not familiar with systemd units, this is, I mean, you could go, you could go cat the, you could go cat the file if you wanted to, but this is just a really nice way to go through, get all of the names of your systemd service files, all the different unit files, and, mm -hmm. and look at how they're written, uh, making it really nice. Like, and we've, we've recently uh, had to write some here for the uh, SATCOM 1 and SATCOM 2, I believe, and so something like the tool like this uh, mm -hmm. is really nice, and you can save the file out right there, so... Check it out. You know, you know the, the way I look at stuff like this is uh, on on the desktop. I think everything should be a graphical utility if we can if we can accommodate it because that's that is a, a lot more intuitive. I just think it's better overall. However, when it, when you get onto the server, then it's all about trying to keep resources down as much as possible. And so if I can substitute if I can substitute a little bit of head knowledge and a little bit of effort and elbow grease and and from that I get a little bit more system resources out of it. I.e., if I do things from the command line, I don't have to run an entire graphical head then I'm mm -hmm. all about that on the server. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, on the server, I could totally see not really needing something like this. But, uh, yeah, look, it's, there is a deb available, too. So right there. How about that, Noah? There you go. There's a deb, and a, like I said, it's systemd-manager-git in uh, the AUR. So that's, I think, a really cool uh, tool. So that's our spotlight for this week. Hey, I just wanted to say, before we go any further, full stop, stop the show right here, hold up. If you are a patron over at patreon.com slash today, you may want to hit pause on the show and go watch the patron-only live stream, which I've been posting. I have, like, for example, here, the TechSnap episode 267 full live stream. We're pasting, it for, we're pasting those over there. For, and we're working out a system, so it's not fully done yet. So I'm only, putting a, I'm only sharing a couple at a time uh, during the week. But for our patrons, I, I expect this episode in its full live stream glory, including the overhyped data center video at the beginning of the live stream, should all be over on our Patreon page as you are watching this. So if you're a patron at patreon.com slash today or want to become one, you should get unlocked access to this episode, which will include the much longer, unedited, whole live event. If you couldn't make it live over jblife.tv, now you have a chance to watch the whole thing at patreon.com slash today. Which is I really cool. I, I, sometimes I don't make it for last, so it's right. nice to be able to watch the whole show. And you get to hear us, uh, you know, curse and uh, say, no, I'm actually, we're usually pretty clean. But every now and then we, we get a little blue. But, you know, you could imagine somebody before you watch the show, if you were curious what went on, you know, in between the segments and stuff like that. It's a pretty cool perk. And it's it's directly related to the work we talked about in last week's episode that made it possible. And that's really awesome, too, because that's all powered by Linux and just we were crazy excited about it. We talked about it last week, but that's not what we're here to talk about now. Now, let's do the news. Hey, it's 
watch the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. Everybody go to last.ting.com, support this show, and get yourself a $25 discount over at Ting off your first device, or if you have a Ting-compatible device, you'll get it in service credits. Now, they have CDMA and GSM networks, and they only charge you for what you use, plus $6 for the line, and then Uncle Sam's taxes. That's it. That's Ting. Last.ting.com. You go there. It's that freaking simple. Well... They also have incredible customer service with real human beings, the best dashboard in the mobile industry, and a very, very, very straightforward product offering. They have all the different lines of products, from feature phones all to the latest smartphones, unlocked. You buy them, you own them. And you just pay for what you use. Go over there right now, last.ting.com, and try out their savings calculator. Watch their video, too, on how their dashboard works. Legitimately, uh, super, super one of the best dashboards, for me specifically, because some of the people that have these Ting devices of mine are not me. They're not me. So I have to remember like a lot of little details about their accounts normally. But with Ting, I've set nicknames for all my devices so I know which one is whose, and I can go in there and see minutes, messages, megabytes, and see where the cost is coming at. I can easily set caps and limits. I can take control of each individual line and activate and deactivate them when I hand out devices. Like I've got the Nexus 5, you know, I've got that activated right now. When I'm done with it, I'll deactivate it or I'll give it to somebody else and keep the line active. I love the flexibility that Ting dashboard gives me. It's one of my favorite things, and I really can't talk about it enough because for me, it's part of what makes Ting possible. A lot of times I'm in the middle of the night when I decide I want to mess around and get to my, you know, it's finally quiet. I don't have a bunch of people bugging me. Now I finally want to get to managing my phone. I don't want to have to call somebody. And that's why even though they have humans that answer the phone and help you, I still prefer their dashboard. It's that good. It is a really, really great dashboard. And if you've got a few lines, this is a no-brainer way to go, especially if you're a small business. Check them out. Just go to last.ting.com first, if you would. They have SIM cards available for $9, no contract, no early termination fee or anything stupid like that. They got great prices on great feature phones or Motorola E's, like a nice entry-level Android phone. They got the blue hardware, which I think doesn't get enough attention, also the Ansatel. You got the Moto G in here. Then, of course, getting up into the Samsung S6 and S7, the OnePlus, all that good stuff. The Internet Phone 5S and 6 and... The LG Nexus 5X, the Moto X Pure Edition, all that stuff. Hawaii 6P, yeah, they got the Nexus 6P. Check them out, last.ting.com. And uh, let's see, Noah, I could try to replicate the Ting experience a little bit. Ting There you go, hold on, hold on, hold on, Kara. Yeah, I just got that first note, because Noah's got an app pick for us this week. So I, first of all, let me start by saying I hate PayPal. And I don't just like kind of <laughs> hate PayPal, like I freaking loathe PayPal. Hey-o. Because PayPal. PayPal does this thing where they take all of my money out of my PayPal balance, regardless of where the money came from or regardless of where the money's going. Hey, you you pot, bought something for a client, and, and so I wanted that to go on my business card. Sorry, I just took your personal dinner money because that happened to be in your PayPal balance. And then if that isn't bad enough, they take money out of my bank account rather than charge it to my credit card, and despite setting preferences and default options and all that other stuff. And it has gotten to the point where my bank, actually, I have now have a no debts allowed on the account that is linked hmm. to my PayPal wow. Thing just so they can't steal money from me. That's how much I hate PayPal. What drives me crazy about PayPal from a user perspective is every time I go to like buy a Steam game mm-hmm. or anything, that's pretty much what I, I have. Like a, I have like a little dedicated PayPal account that I'll put like 15 bucks in. And mm-hmm. it's so, maybe it's because it's always a low balance. I don't know if other people don't get this, but 
I always get this prompt that comes up and says, would you like to pay for this with like a, a PayPal line of credit or loan or something? Like it's it's like not my balance in my account. Oh, and it's the default games now. That's great. It's the default. Yeah, it's the default option. Like I want to take a, like I want to take a loan out or whatever, a line of credit or whatever it is for my Steam game. Never do I will I ever want to do that ever. I ne- will never want to pay interest on a Steam game ever in my entire <laughs> life. I never want that option. And it's the default every single time. So yeah, so just trying to send somebody some quick cash is the default. So that happened to me two weeks ago. I was trying to send Alex some money, and the way that everything got screwed up, it ended up depositing it into the wrong thing. And so anyway, he had to go over to his bank and take $20 out of an ATM and then run down the street to his bank to deposit it so it didn't overdraft his account. It's just it's a huge nightmare. But at the same time, we have this fundamental problem because you go out to dinner with a bunch of friends, and the bill comes to you know 50 bucks, and you say, well, let's just all split it up. Well, it's kind of a pain sometimes. Some restaurants won't even let you do it if it's a big group. And then other times, it's, well, now i got to run this card and then hers cards. It'd just be nice if I could just hand that person some cash. But then again, nobody carries cash. I mean, I carry <laughs> the super slim. I have the slim fold. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any cash. I have my driver's license, my concealed carry permit, and my business card, my personal card, and that's it. So I have no way of giving other people cash. Snap! Uh, it is uh, there's there's an app from the same people that bring you the Square card reader called Square Cash, and basically you install the app. It's super simple to set up. You add your debit card to it, and then you get a you get you get a, what they call a cash tag, which is the uh, the dollar sign and then your username. Oh my gosh! And, and so basically, so I set up you know you know dollar sign Kernel Linux, and then I basically we were at a restaurant, and uh, the the guy the guy I was with he paid the bill, and he he shows me this app, and he's like just install this, and so I. I Install the app and sh- and I I, he, I give him my my cash tag and he requests money and I click on it and it sends the money to him. But then the coolest thing was is because it's a debit card, it it almost instantaneously deposited it into his account. He had it right into right in his bank account almost right away. No extra and account it, needed by the end of the night anyway. But I was like, wow, that is absolutely incredible. And the great thing is, like, I know that like you know Facebook, you can send money and Snapchat, you can send money, but Gmail. But this is an this is just designed for sending money there's not like yeah what's the, other what's the account sign up process like once you install the app do you have to go create an account or it took me 30 seconds you type in your phone number you click next you type in your debit card number where you want to withdraw or deposit funds you click next you enter in your 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 uh your uh your cash tag and then you click done yeah. and now it's set up so it's one of these where uh they're uh, tying it to your phone number and the nice the, the downside is it's tied to your phone number but the nice side like telegram is it's not tied to another set of user credentials somewhere else so yeah, that is it, a big plus for me. Yep, it is it, it, the the best uh, the, one of the best Android apps I found in a long, long time. Exclusively the way I plan it. Now, the better solution obviously would be if we could all go to bitcoins. But until that happens, <laughs> the best solution for transferring money yeah. from one person to another. I've been rocking and my no Nexus. Fees, no, fees, no fees. There's no fees if you want to send. Oh, money. really? Yeah, so I'll yeah, put that. I got that. I got the Nexus 5X. Off. I'll put it on the. I got the Nexus 5X. I got it on the Ting network. I love that. I love the. Fa- I love getting a device that's a Google experience device that has C- CDMA and GSM. That to me means no carrier is ever going to block my updates. I have an unlocked phone with no contract, and I can choose whichever is the strongest signal. Love that combo. I think it'd be a great combo for you too if you want to get like the 5X or the 6P, something like that. Those are great devices. You get a great Google experience. You get GSM and CDMA. You just pick which one you want to be on and set it up. Last.ting.com. Okay, Noah. I almost had to put this first headline in here just for you, although it's getting a whole bunch of attention on the internets this week. Uh, and it's we'll go with the uh, there's lots of news stories about it, but we'll go with the one posted over at the Verge. Chromebooks outsold Macs for the first time in the good old U.S. of A. 
Now, that's kind of a big deal because until recently, the MacBook climb had been pretty steep. IDC doesn't typically break out Windows versus Chromebook sales, uh, but they did confirm to The Verge that Chrome OS overtook Mac OS in the U.S. in terms of shipments for the first time in Q1 2016. Now, they mentioned Chromebooks are still largely a U.S. K-12 story, as they put it. IDC estimates Apple's U.S. Mac shipments to be around 1.76 million in the last quarter, which means Dell, HP, and Lenovo sold nearly 2 million Chromebooks in Q1 combined. <laughs> and that's really their big advantage, right? You got, you got yourselves the Chromebooks coming from a bunch of different vendors that can go in and get these great deals with schools, and they've been extremely popular in those schools. Now, uh, what do you think, Noah? Chromebooks are outselling the Macs. So I had an experience a couple of years ago that really shaped a, a large belief of mine and, and really kind of structured me and kind of set me down a path. And that was, I was standing in Best Buy and I was looking and there was this lady probably in her 50s or 60s. And she's standing at looking at all the different computers and very confused and walks up to the sales guy and says, I'm looking for a laptop. And the guy goes, <clears throat> what are you looking for? And she's like, well, I have this Windows PC at home. And it just, it crashes all the time and it just, it's not very stable. And like, and he goes, well, what do you do with your computer? And she goes, well, I, uh, I go on Facebook and I watch YouTube and I check Gmail. Well, that's really about it. Sometimes I type a letter to my daughter and I print that off and send it to her. And the guy goes, all right, well, I've got the perfect computer for you and takes her over to a $1,200 MacBook and says this, or, I'm sorry, $900 MacBook Air and says, here you go. Here is, here is, here is the best computer for what you're describing. Now it's going to cost you a little bit more, but it's going to do all those things that you said you wanted to do. Um, and she's like, geez, $900 for what I, you know, I, I spent like 300 on my last computer. And the guy goes, well, yeah, but the, you know, that's what you get. You buy, you know, cheap hardware. And then, then it just, it, it craps out after a couple of months. And, and in my mind, it, it fireworks are going off and my brain oh, is you're witnessing I'm this? Saying, I'm saying, so one, here is a Linux user. That woman could be a Linux user. If I wasn't in Best Buy and I didn't think it was so tacky, I would go convert her to Linux right this second because she could be using Linux. Second of all, there's nothing wrong with her six-month-old hardware. It's probably perfectly fine. Yeah. Windows just sucks yeah. so yeah. bad that she can't get those things done. So her only choice in the store at that time, this is five, six years ago, was this, this MacBook Air. And, and so I was like, well, that could be a Linux user. And so what this story exemplifies is what I, I've been saying this for years is that People will buy the lowest price computer that will get the job done. And for a lot of people, a lot of people, get the job done means open a web browser and that's it. Yeah. You can get a web browser, yeah. you can get everything else done. I have a similar story about a, uh, about a grandma who uh, went in and, and I, I think you might have been there with it because I didn't experience it myself. I think a listener was sharing this with you and I at a conference, and he said that his grandma went in and said, I play games. Remember the story? She says, I play oh, this games. Is Alex. This is Alex's mom. Yeah, she went into okay. Best Buy and told she told she told Best Buy she she walked in she said uh, she said uh, she he goes what are you looking for in a computer and she's like I uh, I, I play games on my computer when she meant Facebook gamer. games and the guy goes oh you need this Alienware yeah. fifteen hundred dollar yeah. desk yeah. well she plays Facebook games she right. plays Candy Crush on Facebook <laughs> she didn't need a fifteen hundred dollar computer and, and so I agree you know, this is this is. Just to finish my thought, this is where I think everybody put all of their cards initially when like Steve Jobs was still alive and whatnot, and when GNOME 3 was being invented, everybody put all of their all of their cards on tablets for this job. And now here we are in 2016, and it turns out it just was a different iteration of netbooks that needed to get the job done. A simpler, more subsidized right. direct edition of netbooks. Mm -hmm. I don't sit here though and feel good about this. Um, and I was trying to sit here and, and come up with uh, a good a good reason why. And um, 
Yickety yackety. I mean, look at this. Look at this username here. It's uh, L Y K W Y D C H Y K Y N. You don't know how to pronounce that. No, I don't know what's the matter with me. Clearly, look at Big Bang. That's how <laughs> Obviously. He writes To me, Chromebook success misses the point of why I want Linux as a Linux, uh, why I want Linux as an OS to succeed in the first place. It isn't about running this particular kernel on as many devices as possible. Ah, that's where it starts to yeah. register with me. Mm -hmm. It's about creating a freedom for the end user. Do we get excited about our distros because they have a Linux kernel? Or because they give us the freedom we want on the desktop? Right. And the thing is, is Chrome OS doesn't get me that excited. I'm, I'm not excited about this news, and I am not excited about Chromebooks. I, oh. I'm excited with what I could do with Chromebooks if I got one and then put Linux on it or a Crouton. <laughs> So there, there, to me, there's there is a hierarchy. There is a tier. So the first, the 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 bottom rung, low level tier is, I am sick and tired of fixing Windows boxes. I hate fixing Windows boxes. And so if nothing, if I get nothing else out of this life, if we get to a point where everyone is using mm -hmm. something like a Chromebook so that they stop asking for help and they can just open right. a web browser and and browse the internet, that is seems like a very as a, as a, even even as a technologist, that's a win to have a better computing experience for the general population. Okay, right. I agree. And so and so and so uh, rung to just slightly above that, if that happens to be on the Linux kernel, however, however irrelevant that is, because it is, after all, like you said, just a kernel, it doesn't really provide any any freedom. If one level, so we'll call that 1.5 rung, if, if we can reach that level, yeah, that's another success. And then I start to then I can start to latch on is after we get to that point, yeah. then I want to see freedom and 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 the other thing is too is you know, you know can like I can I interrupt there? Like yeah, because uh, that sounds like the logic of why Hillary Clinton's going to get elected and be the next president of the United States. Uh, that's that's the same that here and he just he says it better than I could. It's the kind it's kind of like if you preferred your political party. Uh, uh, it's like if you preferred your political party nominates a candidate who's wildly popular and stands a great chance of winning, but goes against all the core values of the party, including the values that made you care about the party in the first place. Do you care more about our team wins or that our values win? And that kind of sounds like an our team wins argument. Well, it might not be all of Linux, but the Linux kernel got there. At least our team won. And I'm sitting there going, but... What did we bring yeah. with us in this victory? Yeah. We didn't. We didn't bring any of the uh, five freedoms. We didn't. We didn't bring any of the innovation that's going on in Linux desktop space. That is we, you are true. That is true. But it seems like it seems though if you it, it, it seems that once we get once Linux has succeeded even without freedoms it that is an easier thing to do to change from a from a non-free everyone's using Linux people are writing software in Linux Linux now exists and, and it is the accepted standard on a desktop and then try to introduce freedoms that way than it is to try to take somebody from a, a heavily Microsoft Windows dominated world mm -hmm. and try to bring them over completely. And that I admit that logic may not be totally sound. I haven't really thought of it. You know, I think I would I would agree it. more with you about that uh, if it wasn't for just the fantastic voluntary lock-in that Google's really nice services offer. As a Google yeah. Chromebook user, you can power wash your machine and be right back where you were left off, and all of your personal data just sinks right back down. Oh, that Wi-Fi network you used? Yeah, I saved that for you. Let me automatically re-add that for you. Oh, yeah. that file encryption you use? We just meant that's encryption in transit. No big deal. They have created a type of lock-in with really good services like Calendar and, and uh, Gmail and things like YouTube yeah. that 
will make it very hard, especially if you become like a keep user and you sort of expand out into the wider array of Google products. Um, yeah. You can really get sucked in super deep. Uh, I mean, hell, they're even a wireless carrier these days, right? You can go all you can go all the way in, and what you yeah. will find is that is a very hard experience to pull yourself out of. And yeah, and it the, almost the chat like room is also, chat room is also they're kind of swaying my my opinion on this as well. Is and they're they're absolutely right. Is um, you know, once you get into that experience, once you once we get once we take that software over, then then there's not there there isn't necessarily an easy way back out of that because now all of the proprietary services have just been ingrained with an operating system with a different name and a different kernel. Yeah. But we have all the same problems that we had back when we. When, ain't, when yeah, we ain't nobody and ain't nobody got time to switch their email service and their calendar service yeah. and their contacts and their everybody their messaging platform of choice. Nobody's got time for that these yeah. days. And on top of that I've said this before. I, I think these cloud service lock-ins, which mm. are not open source and are data mining you constantly, right. make the file format wars and file format lock-in of the '90s look quaint. It, remember yeah. when we cared about .doc and .xls? Remember how quaint that was? In, consp- in, con- in now 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 we are comparing multi-billion-dollar national companies' cloud solutions to each other, and that's our new form of lock-in. And these Chromebooks yeah. are a front-end um, manifestation of an overall corporate strategy. Now I don't necessarily again. I, I so are MacBooks. It's just a different type of lock-in. Um, right. Yeah, that's right. You're right. It is. It really is. And the other thing is, too, is, and to your point, just to piggy tail onto that, is MacBooks have a problem where it, it, there are some, there, it's difficult to get Linux to work with the hardware yeah. to get some of that stuff to work. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Chromebooks have the problem where they physically lock you from writing to the bootloader. So even though the hardware works, True. if you let the battery die, then you end up having to reinstall your Here's operators. the thing, Noah. I feel like the Chromebook, because of its lower price point, that particular hurdle is less of a huge deal because. You know, you you, st- you you mess something up on a MacBook, you're out twelve hundred dollars base, yeah. right? But let's be honest, yeah. if it's a nice MacBook, you're probably out twenty eight hundred dollars if yeah. you're getting a nice yep. one with something right. that has a decent hard drive in it or something like that. Twenty eight hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. Chromebook, you're out three hundred bucks. Now that's not nothing, but it's not twenty eight hundred dollars, right. and you could just go get another one. And on top of that, there's so many freaking guides out there because these things are so low cost. So many people have their hands on them that there's mm-hmm. a lot of momentum behind getting Linux to work on these things. And one thing has proven true in the history of Linux, and definitely echoed back on the stuff we've followed on this show, Linux finds a way. It is like the weeds that yeah, grow through true. the cracks in cement, right? And yeah. the Chromebook, there, is a, there are multiple so, avenues to get Linux on there. So at least from that respect, I like them. So let me, let me ask you, do you think there's some validity to the fact that if we start with the Linux kernel running on a Chromebook, they are then all of those all of that hardware is going to work in because they're using it seems like a better shot, kernel, right? Then when we go to yeah. to use a normal desktop operating system, you know that, that we have a better chance of keeping I that just, hardware. I just is wish there some validity in that. I just wish um, they weren't locking them down. I understand they're doing it because they're hardware subsidizing, but yeah, it seems like they're pretty good Linux boxes, except for that little issue. The the, the thing that, where that argument doesn't hold water though is that HP seems to be Microsoft seems to be subsidizing HP, and they don't seem to lock those or and Lenovo, and they don't seem to lock those two hundred dollar machines down uh, that that come with Windows on it. So, but I guess the, it's the almost problem. like. Google doesn't care about consumers. <laughs> I will tell you this though, if nothing else we can we can we can we can wrap on a positive note that if people if the entire world switched over to Chromebooks, I promise you if I can switch Windows users 
over to Linux, I guarantee you I can switch Chromebook users to Linux because all I have to do is install Chrome. (laughs) (laughs) Problem solved. That's true. (laughs) Except you get more software available to you. Let's uh, shift gears and talk a little about Fedora. We've been watching the development slowly of Fedora 24, and boy, they had a weird timing freeze on this one, just the way it worked out. They're in freeze right now, and Fedora is on schedule, I believe, at this moment to ship on June 14th. Sure. Uh, uh, Here is the real downside, though. We talked about this in Linux Unplugged last week. Linux kernel 4.6 was just released by Linus on May 15th, and mm-hmm. this is a weasel of a kernel. And that by 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 Linus's marker means this is a real good one. And I'd say the overall um, consensus is that this is a good kernel. It's got OrangeFS built in now, which is a cool distributed file system. The big one for consumers has support now for USB 3.1. That's Kind of huge, actually. Uh, an out-of-memory task killer, which really uh, has some nice improvements. Uh, Intel memory protection keys are in there, and also 802.11, 1AE, uh, Mac-level encryption, as well as the Batman protocol and OCFS2 is in there, as well as also some iSCSI improvements. It's a big kernel, 4.6. And the way that the Fedora window works is they're going to end up shipping with kernel 4.5, and then a week or two afterwards... Shipping everybody 4.6, which is going to probably mess with graphic drivers and all this kind of stuff. It's kind of a bummer. And the reason I wanted to bring it up in the show is not to pick on Fedora here, but just to ask you, Noah, like, mm-hmm. I mean, is it just me, or does this feel like a problem that we shouldn't have anymore? Like, does it feel like we should be more fluid on this kind of stuff? If you're just... feel like we should go to rolling, Noah? No, I'm not asking that. If you're okay. just... I mean, maybe, that, maybe, maybe that's the answer, but if you're just going to slip it in two weeks, let's just say, for the sake of argument, uh, they say in the coming weeks, but let's just say in two weeks, three weeks, after your release, if you're just going to upgrade it to 4.6 anyways, why not rebase on 4.6 now, do the Q&A process, do a little testing, and ship it with 4.6 so the damn distro ships with 4.6 by default, even if it meant you waited the two weeks. Like, you've already delayed the project. Like, what's, why are we, what is this, this seems like guaranteed clunky post-installation experiences for a lot of users. So, I mean, so obviously, at some point, I mean, obviously, you're right, there is no actual freeze point. So we have just have to pick a spot in time where we're going to stop and then concentrate on getting the actual distro out. If it was my project, if I was in charge of it, would I delay the release of the distro until I had four or six out? Yeah, probably. Why they might not want to do that? Well, maybe they don't want to. Maybe they don't want the added pressure of having to test four point six. Who knows how long that'll take? Who knows what problems might pop up? Yeah, Who knows? yeah. And so if they if they ship sense. it with an older version of the kernel, they can get the release out. Everything. Mm-hmm. Will, I mean, it's not like things aren't going to work in in the older kernel. Yeah, and then true. we have, and then we just we take our time. We make sure we get all our ducks in a row, and then when it's ready, then we push it out to the users. I suppose so. I just and I think. You you know, like X Metal's kind of agreeing with me in the chat room. I really am starting to feel like uh, I know nobody agrees with me. I'm just a crazy person, but I'm starting to feel like these things show cracks in Linux's age. Like these are just when uh, like it's like when you install a distro that tries to when you go install a package, it tries to install it from like an installation media by default. It feels like that kind of old '90s thinking about approach to how to build an operating system that really is now traditionally and predominantly used in in in, in any serious work case where you're going to have Fedora in place, you have so many other mechanisms around that already that the, the issue you brought up doesn't actually apply to real users in production. And I, 
I maintain that I, it still feels like a disconnect between what users expect from a distribution like Fedora and where mm. the project is delivering at this moment. They've been really good for a long time. I'm watching, though, and I'm, I'm there. It really feels like an old model to me. That's all. That's all. But at the same time, I know I'm the only person that feels that way, so we'll move on. Uh, the LM Sensors project might be out of business. Uh, it's been a year since the last LM Sensors release, which is a major bummer because I love looking at my hardware temps. And uh, the main site now has been down for a while. There hasn't been a major LM Sensors release to talk about in a year, and their mailing list has basically turned into a collection of spam. Their project site, lm-sensors.org, has been down for several weeks. And it looks like the project uh, leader and SUS developer, Gene uh, Davaris, says the server is dead and will not come back. We'll be migrating everything in other places like kernel.org or GitHub, perhaps. Not a lot of momentum here. And it's kind of sad, no, because it's kind of a key project. You know, when, you, when you're working on your machine, I've got, a, I got an extension right here on my GNOME desktop that shows me the different temperatures of my uh, GPU, CPU. Boy, I mean, it yeah, we, really breaks it we down. We actually used LM sensors extensively when we were building those machines. Yeah. It, 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 Keep track of things and take a look. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And you know, some operating systems like I hate to do comparisons, but like Mac OS mm -hmm. and their crappy uh, proprietary SMC controller that manages all this stuff, they they get temperature stats on like everything. They have they have ambient case temperatures, they have external case temperatures, so they even give you room temperature stats. Like I've got one here. Let's see. Uh, uh, I don't actually know if I collect those stats, but oh yeah, oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so every CPU core, the GPU uh, die, the GPU uh, proximity, so a sensor next to the GPU, the LCD flying lead, the MLB ambient light, uh, the light sensor, the PCI bus sensor, each RAM chip has a temperature sensor on it, the uh, main motherboard has a temperature sensor on it. Uh, the power supply has okay. a temperature sensor on it. I, I can follow you to a certain degree, but then you kind of lose. When you start getting into RAM sensors, like I don't want to put a temperature sensor. No, no. On but my here's RAM where I'm going with this. They the Mac OS, like this stuff is. N if you installed a Mac today, you would have no idea it even has those sensors. Nowhere in the operating system does it actually expose that data unless you install a third party, like I just did for this for this example. Mm -hmm. That third party reads all that data and tells you what that what all that data does is it gets aggregated in Mac OS and Mac OS can preemptively adjust the cooling of your MacBook as it notices CPU load goes up it compares load averages with temperature averages does a quick math and can preemptively scale the fan up and down to avoid getting too loud before it has to just to keep things quiet. What my point is, is if, if you have good, reliable sensor data, you can integrate mm -hmm. it in at a level, for example, if your CPU is running really hot on a laptop, that mm -hmm. is a good indicator you're using a lot of power. You can use these different inputs to make the desktop experience way better. It's not just a geek project you can use to check out your video card overclock and how awesomely cool it is. It is mm -hmm. also a way for you to dynamically manage the experience of your computer. And Linux, to not have that, is just mm. one more, in my estimation, one more, eh, not so great on mobile. Yeah, well, the battery life's not so great on mobile. Power mm. management's not so great. And, well, now the thermal system, you can't really monitor what's going on there, which is a great data point for power usage. So, yeah, you know, if you want to want a really great laptop, you probably should get a Chromebook or a MacBook. That's a shitty answer. And LM Sensors, I think, right. plays a role in, in, in a better answer. And it's kind of a bummer that it's, it's shut down. That's all. And then last but not least, how about a positive story? Mattermost 3.0 just came out, and it's punching Slack in the face. The open-source Slack competitor added uh, multi-team accounts, Japanese support, mobile and desktop app upgrades, integrations for Outlook, 
Yeah, that Outlook. And it looks like an API for Ruby and Rust. So it's also, of course, it's got uh, security updates. So the Mattermost, which this is a this this topic, Rocket Chat and Mattermost and Slack, super 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 big category right now. And so Mattermost is rocking it. So you know, I've I still got Mattermost and Rocket Chat installed. I still like them both. Playing with them both still, both of them. You have uh, is there is Mattermost have a have a Linux desktop client? No, oh, yeah, I don't never tried it, but they say they okay. do. I don't know if it's just like an Electron app or what. I mean, you know, for that kind of thing, you, there's probably a way to make it work. Uh, I like too that they're making multi-channel or I mean multi-team support really easy. The mobile apps look like they've gotten a nice upgrade too, which mm-hmm. looks really cool. Mattermost 3.0, yeah. I'll have to try out the desktop app for you, know, and let you know how it goes. Also, big emoji updates. There you go. So watch out, Slack. Mattermost is coming for you. All right, that's all the news for this week. It's almost impossible to do this entire subject justice in one episode of The Big Show, but we're going to give it our best. There's a common question we get on the show, and it's something Linux is particularly good at. Different types of virtualization, from the stuff that is brand, brand new to stuff that's tried and true and you can put in production, and a little bit of how to do it. All of that is going to be covered in this segment of The Linux Action Show. Before we jump into any of that, and a great place to go to learn way more about this subject and really do a deep dive is Linux Academy. Go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged to get the Linux Action Show discount. That's a great rate you're going to get. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and go check them out. A platform created by Linux enthusiasts, educators, and developers. They now have 2,447 videos with their self-paced courses. You go in there and get all of that instruction work. You can download it. You can keep it. They have instructor mentoring available when you need it. Scenario-based labs to put you in the middle of common everyday tasks. I love they're graded several exercises because I do have a little test anxiety, so I think this is a great technology. They, speaking of technologies, I was just reading on their blog. No, I know you're all about this, S. They have the new Red Hat Certified Engineer course all up and just about ready for students. It's fully finished, I guess, uh, and it's been a popular request for the last few months. Damn, that's, that's worth it right there. They also have some recent student successes in Linux courseware, AWS. Oh, yeah, they got AWS and that DevOps category, linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Go there for in-depth resources of just about every damn thing we talk about here on this show in a much, much more structured, perfect format. Seven plus distros to choose from. Great help available. Detailed study notes. Comes with your own servers. Enhanced learning plans. It's slick. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You can check them out. So we're going to talk about virtualization, and I don't know if I've ever shared this story in the show. Uh, I had a, I have had a lot of different exposures to different iterations of virtualization over the year. My very first experience with being able to run multiple operating systems on one piece of hardware, that concept was something that was relegated to mainframes for me when I was first in the industry. This is an AS400, but it looks a lot like the... Well, actually, it's got a System 390 on top of it, next to the side. So the System 390 from IBM was a Unix mainframe that virtualized all its different operating systems and was controlled by a 486 OS2 computer. And you didn't run anything directly on the metal by its very design. And this this is, you know, late 80s technology here. By its very design... It was meant to be virtualized. Everything gets virtualized on this machine, and that's and for and then when you went x86, you did one task per machine, and that's eventually how I ended up with 200 servers at one point <laughs> for for one business. Then, as technology progressed and virtualization solutions 
got more realistic on x86 hardware, we started looking into the really, really high-end stuff that was out there, the dedicated stuff that stripped Linux down and made a virtualization solution. And so we deployed VMware ESXi, a Linux-based, massive enterprise virtualization solution with hot swaps and failover and shared RAM and storage pools, requiring Windows applications to manage all of it. Thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to buy all of it. Huge, massive certified storage arrays that started at $30,000 just for the disk. That was virtualization for me. Now, virtualization has changed so much over just the course of this show. We've touched on it from time to time when we've talked about our Proxmox setup. So this week, we wanted to kind of give you some information and instructions to answer common questions that we get. Now, before I read, before I read Eddie's email, no, I was kind of curious your foray into, into virtualization, just your background with it, and then maybe we'll, we'll get into the, sort of the how to set it up and, and get working with it stuff. So basically, uh, the first thing I ever really virtualized was I was attending. This is, I was I was attending a conference many many years ago, back when I was working for another company, and the the development suite that they were using, the software that we had to use, ran in Windows. And of course, I didn't have Windows on my laptop, and so uh, I used VirtualBox to get a little virtual version of Windows up, uh, and that got me through that conference. And that that was that was kind of like the, the taste of it. But then uh, a few years later, I I was attending a. Um, a Linux, uh, a Red Hat uh, training session. And the way that they did all of their training at that point, it was the first year, they had gone all to virtualization. So basically, you got your your virtualization host, which was the computer you sat down on, and then you had a client and server, and you could spin up either one of those. And those were being done under uh, under uh, uh, LibVirt, exactly what we're going to show you later on. And I, I it kind of something clicked for me, and I was like, oh, so I can make one server many yeah. virtualize all things, yeah. right? And so, and then what happened was, and so you know, there's a, there's a little bit of of a drive there, but really, when you get to that point, it's like, especially at that time, VPSs were coming out and stuff, and so you know, you had you had, you had all these different VPSs that I could just go spin up like DigitalOcean and pay five bucks. There's really no reason to go past that. Uh, until I started having these clients that were willing to move to Linux, but they said, we'll move to Linux, but you have to figure out how to get this software to work because we have to use it on Linux. And if I couldn't get it to work reliably and, 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 you know, we're talking about business here too. So, you know, screen tearing and all that stuff matters. Um, you know, it has to work. How do I get these windows only applications to work? On Linux, and what I found was there's there's there, you can combine a couple of different open source tools and virtualization techniques to get a Windows workstation that runs on Linux. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you share that story because uh, I I'm not you and I are about the same age. I'm not like some super old guy here, but my mm-hmm. uh, my history with virtualization is I distinctly remember distinctly remember a time before virtualization was baked into the Linux kernel. Yeah, the transition period where we had Zen and you had to have a separate kernel if you wanted to use Zen, you had to reboot between your main kernel and your Zen kernel. I remember when KVM got integrated into the Linux kernel and it became like mm-hmm. the default virtualizer, and Linux came now with its own virtualizer. And I remember thinking, God, are we getting bloated? Like that's crazy, a virtualizer. Yeah. So you kind of what I'm getting when you came in on the VPS scene and stuff like that. That was sort of post virtualization baked into the kernel. So, oh yeah, yeah. It it really passed me by. In fact, it's a rather embarrassing story. I've shared it once on the air. I, I guess uh, I'm sorry to screw myself, but <laughs> but I was I was the, the first time I had ever heard of, of virtualization like at lar- at scale. 
I was sitting at a conference and, you know, we were talking about, you know, the, the ways that, uh, you know, very, anytime you go to a training s- session, all the guys in between and gals, all uh, anytime between sessions, everyone talks about what they do. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. And so we're going through and of course, and, and I'm sitting there, you know, and we had just bought, you know, you know, we had just bought, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, uh, you know, this big, nice, uh, you know, bare metal machine we had it set up. And, and so, and I, 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 yeah, I, in my, in my, you know, 23, 24 year old wisdom, I'm like nobody, you know, in serious production actually virtualizes this nonsense. You, if you're really going to run, you got to run it on bare metal. And the guy lo- next to me looks at me and he's like, would you consider 3M to be a serious company? I'm like, oh yeah. And he's like, okay. Cause all of our stuff is virtualized. So and then and then and then and then like you know w- within a year I had realized how virtualization has just taken off and I for whatever reason lived under a box and just missed it. But yeah, no, I, I think there I think we experienced that too in some of the emails we'd gotten from our audience and uh, and that people just felt like well it's not really fast enough yet. But thanks to improvements that uh, the different CPU manufacturers made over the years, in fact, we're going to talk about one at, towards the end of this segment where you can dedicate an entire graphics card to your virtual machine and have full mm-hmm. 3D Windows gaming under a VM or whatever 3D, because it gets full access to the GPU. Uh, it's right. really progressed amazingly far since I first got into it. But it's kind of, speaking of the audience, I wanted to, that's where I wanted to pick up, because this has been a thread that people have asked us a lot. And Eddie writes in, uh, and he says, uh, long-time listener of all the shows and love the energy and passion you guys bring to last. I'm in the process of trying to convert all of my Windows 7 computers at work to run Ubuntu 16.04. I'm using one old Windows program written in Visual Fox Pro 9 that only runs in Windows. I remember you talking in a previous show about how you could run old Windows-only programs inside a computer, and the Linux desktop clients would remote into them and then use it with the experience being seamless, essentially, to the end user. I was kind of hoping you could point me in the direction of how uh, and what software you use to accomplish that, and possibly even could do a how-to on a future Linux action show. Thanks in advance, Eddie. Well, no, that's basically what we've done here, isn't it? Yep. Just yeah, I, I did. I did because I felt bad, and I didn't know when I was going to get. We were going to get around to doing this. I did bang out. A, a very crude here's how you can get it to work if you want to do it tonight and then gave them some contact info but this will be a yeah. little bit more positive. This is for everybody else to answer those emails that uh, we get into the show so uh, we're gonna this will be the how-to portion of our segment doom, doom. we are now entering the how-to portion of the segment and then we'll come back and talk about some of those other virtualization options and some of the ones we're still using here at JB Studio Take it away Noah from the past Since hosting the show for over a year, we've had countless emails come in of people asking how to virtualize servers. Now, certainly, if you just need a simple Linux server, we're going to send you over to DigitalOcean, spin up a $5 or $10 droplet. That's going to work just great for you. But oftentimes, there is some advantage in having a local server in-house. And I'm going to go over exactly what some of those reasons might be, but more importantly, how to set it up. So to get started, we're going to go to a... CentOS uh, server, CentOS 6.5 on up through CentOS, I think 7.2, I've tried it with. Um, and we're going to install a set set of packages, and I've put those in the show notes. It's pretty straightforward. You literally copy and paste the yum command and wait for it to complete, and then you're done. So we won't bother demonstrating that, but we are going to go to our laptop now and install the software that we need to use and administrate our virtual servers. So we're going to open up a terminal. And we are going to install the vert-manager package. And what this package is, is a graphical package that will be used to manage our virtual servers. 
we use Vert Manager and connect over SSH to our virtual host. So we wait for that to finish and then we open Vert Manager. And it's gonna ask us if we wanna host Vert Manager locally, we're gonna say no. And we're gonna add our remote virtual host. And of course, I am using a YubiKey to secure my SSH session, so it's gonna prompt me for that. Now that we've established an SSH connection to our virtual host, we can now go about the process of creating virtual servers. Now we've gone ahead and downloaded a ISO image of Ubuntu 16.04 into a specified directory which we have in the show notes. And But the important thing to remember is that you could use any ISO image of any version of Linux that you would like including some not so popular or well-known versions of Linux that we're going to talk about. So let's go back to our virtual manager here and we're going to click on this button to create a new virtual server and we're going to call this fart. And we are going to use the Ubuntu 16.04 image for our install. This is Linux. We're gonna give it a gig of RAM. We're gonna give it one CPU. We'll give it a 25 gig hard drive. And we will go forward. And we'll click finish. to connect to the graphical console. So basically what it's doing is it is using VNC to get a live console uh, screen grab of the virtual server. And I'm just gonna wait for that to pop up and I'll give it my YubiKey pin. And as you can see, now I am basically, for all intents and purposes, sitting in front of the computer waiting for my Ubuntu installation to start. And I can go through that installation uh, and install Ubuntu. Now, some people wonder where the real benefit in this is and where I have most often deployed virtual hosts running virtual guests is actually, of all places, Windows environments. I refuse to touch Windows. I refuse to really do any serious administration of Windows. And so the only way I will really work with clients if they have a specific Windows need is to sandbox and contain Windows into an easy to use system that I can administrate um, from Linux. And so basically what we'll do is we will set up a Linux-based server that hosts a virtual guests and then we will install a cloud workstation version of Windows. So take a version of Windows 7 and we will install it inside as a virtual server. 
And once the installation and configuration of that workstation is set up the way that the client wants to use it, I make a copy of that image. Now there is a way that you can also do that uh, using a rollback feature uh, through Verse, the command line uh, component of Verb Manager, but that's a little bit beyond the scope of this episode. Uh, so for ease of simplicity, we make a copy of the clean image or the sterile image of the workstation that has been configured. <clears throat> we store that outside of that directory <clears throat> that, I, that we were talking about earlier, uh, where it stores all of the hard disk images. And then anytime a user destroys or corrupts that cloud workstation, we simply make a new copy of the sterile one and replace the infected or damaged cloud workstation in, in about 30 seconds I can do a system restore. Now how do our clients actually get to that cloud workstation? Well we have just Ubuntu desktops with the Ruminia remote desktop RDP client installed and there are they are essentially RDPing into our virtual Windows server to access their virtual cloud Windows desktop. And this makes it very easy to start treating Windows as if it was some crappily written application rather than an actual core operating system running on metal. I can simply blow it away and restore that workstation as many times as needed without ever having to actually touch the real configuration of the server, the, the thing that contains, you know, you know, the IP addresses. And, and also, we can have multiple workstations, right? So I can have four or five different ones that uh, four or five different departments or individuals are using, and we can have multiple copies running simultaneously. So if one workstation goes down, they can simply log on to, you know, workstation two, cloud workstation two, and then I can go blow away cloud workstation one and, and restore it. And so that, that's kind of how we have used this virtual infrastructure to uh, kind of give a crutch to the shortcomings of Windows and switch clients that aren't ready to jump fully off of Windows into Linux, into Linux. And of course, what we found is once they have a Linux workstation up and running, things like email, things like web browsing, all of that stuff moves straight to the Linux desktop um, without them losing access to their core apps. Nice, nice Noah from the past. Nice. Uh, and good to have you back, Noah, from the present. I think I like Noah from the present mics better. But that was good information. And yeah, sorry. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to t just pick up, you were talking about Vert Manager, and you were showing it there for the, p for the folks at home watching the video version. Uh, one of the really cool things about Vert Manager, too, is you can remotely connect to that S. So you could have uh, you could have a GUI to a, on a remote like VPS well, or. So if, if you watch actually the video, that's what we did, right? That's oh, you did why do that. we okay. established an SSH connection to the, the server. Inside of that connection thing, we're typing in the IP address and the username, and uh, that that is establishing a connection to the remote virtual host. Which actually, and this is just, there's no, I don't, I would, I'm not recommending you do this. I'm definitely not recommending you do this. Nobody do this, but. I may or may not have hosted that virtual host on DigitalOcean because it turns out you can turn, run a virtual server. Why wouldn't you? Virtual yeah, sure, server. why not? Why not? Yeah. yeah, if you want to do that. One of the other things that's kind of nice about Vert Manager, I believe, that some of the other uh, GUIs don't give you access to is you can do some of the hardware pass-through options in the GUI, which are right. a lot to set up. Uh, and I want to talk about uh, that for a sec. So, mm -hmm. that's, so that's a nice way to use the built-in tools in Linux to manage a virtual machine. And there's a lot of different ways to get started with libvirt. I have a great great tutorial on the ArchWiki linked. But just for a second, I wanted to start from a consumer standpoint. If you're not interested in server virtualization, if you're just looking for a desktop solution and you want it to be 
nice and Linux compatible and native and written in you know, a desktop toolkit that's actually designed for Linux, then check out Boxes. We've mentioned it before. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, we've, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we have talked about it in the past. We've also talked about VirtualBox in the past. That's not what we are here to talk about. I want to go down the journey I, I took learning what it takes to set up PCI Passer. Now, Noah, I believe, mm-hmm. and I know I may not be correct, but I believe in the past, what you have set up is called VGA Passthrough. No. No, no I, you, I've done PCI Passer. Okay. I, I, essentially, what I did was I passed the, a USB, I took a, its own PCI USB card and, a, and its own video card, and I passed both of those through to the virtual guest. So basically, when I started the virtual guest, this, com, this keyboard, right. mouse, and a monitor so you, would start up as its own little virtual Then you computer. have been through the pain of, okay, so then you know what a, like, what a pain it is to hardware-wise Get this just right. You got to have yes. just the right CPU. You got to have the right motherboard. You got to even have the right. PCI slots wired in the right way on your motherboard. If right. you meet these criteria, which is a moving target, okay. So you're on board with what? I, and that's that's not a small feat. So that's like that's a big if deal. If you plan it from the beginning, it's not so bad. Right. If you try to say, "Oh, I'm just going to try this on my computer," you might have a hard time. Now, did you must have also then worked with OVMF, which is a project to enable UEFI support inside virtual machines. So, this is a key piece now, so that your virtual machines will use UEFI. Your main PC has to be used the host has to be using UEFI. You have to enable uh, a couple of Intel features or AMD features at boot. Uh, and you also have to turn on the virtualization support in your BIOS. Once you do all of these things, you can begin to isolate out PCI devices and dedicate them to virtual machines, which to Linux just look like other machines. And so you can say this network card, this USB device, or this video card is assigned specifically because it is, it, it is assigned via this PCI group, it is assigned to this virtual machine. And that allows you to do things like using QMU right on your desktop, have a fully 3D accelerated virtual machine. It also means you're going to have to have two video cards, one for the host, and then, of course, right. one for the virtual machine. <clears throat> Unless you go with a little uh, sort of off-the-wall solution uh, that a lot of people have written in about called Unraid. You familiar with Unraid, Noah? Unraid no, uh. from Lime Tech is a NAS solution that has a lot of features. And one of the features that Unraid has is a virtualization host. It uses KVM and Linux, and it makes PCI pass-through a frickin' checkbox. Now, they frame this feature for SteamOS or for Kodi. They say, you know, you could take in, you take your NAS... You put a video card in your NAS, and you hook that video card up to your TV. And then on your NAS, you run this KVM virtual machine with full hardware pass-through. So you could have your NAS also be your SteamOS box or your Kodi oh. box. It includes OpenLEC, which is, you know, the uh, OpenELEC is the uh, sort of pre-built Kodi distribution. OpenELEC, mm-hmm. like a checkbox, it deploys OpenELEC. It gets full access to your hardware decoding. It gets full access to the graphics card, and you have it hooked up to your TV. This is a the simplest solution. It is not all free. It is not all. It is there is some proprietary bits in there, but it mm-hmm. is truly the simplest solution. If you want a couple of checkboxes, if you want all the PCI devices to show up, if you want to check a box and assign this video card and this USB sound device and these two hard drives to have native PCI pass through to the virtual machine, raw dog performance. 
Mm-hmm. Unraid makes that possible, and Unraid lets you do it in a in a very straightforward way. But it's not meant to run as your desktop; it's meant to run as a server that has this component to it. It's a neat mm-hmm. feature, uh, and you can see some really, 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 really powerful examples of this on Linus Tech Tips site, where he has uh, seven gamers, one CPU, and they just published eight gamers, one CPU, where they use um, Unraid. And this hardware pass-through, they literally put like eight GPUs in this rig, and then they use Steam streaming to stream the gameplay out to each individual station all over the office. Um, it's, it's pretty amazing because it's all running on top of KVM and this hardware pass-through feature. So I did some digging around. It looks like probably your best bet's going to be on Arch right now if you want to set this up because there is an extensive ArchWiki document on this. I looked mm-hmm. at the work and I decided because it involves adding hardware to my machine and all that, not for me right now, but if I was in the position where I was aching to switch to Linux and there was one or two Linux, uh, Windows things, like maybe a couple of games I just absolutely love or an MMO I have a subscription to like Star Wars, or maybe it's AutoCAD that requires access to my freaking, you know, expensive business class NVIDIA graphics card. This would enable you to do those things under Linux in a window on your Linux box, or maybe dedicate an entire virtual uh, virtual desktop. Imagine full screen on a virtual desktop, a, a Windows 10 install with full hardware capabilities, full hardware acceleration that you can just tab up and down and move around back to Linux. So uh, cool. I have, I, I th- and I think I told you this in Telegram too. When we were talking about back and forth, I'm like, yeah, I don't really have any r- particular passion of, of uh, you know, getting great uh, Windows experience on my Linux desktop. But one thing that I've always really wanted to do, and I've never quite got it to work exactly the way I wanted it to. So we test a lot of distros for the show, right? And one of the things that I was having fun with when I had this set up was when I'd start the virtual machine. You know, I had, like I said, I had a dedicated monitor, uh, keyboard, and mouse that was all being passed through directly to that uh, virtual machine. So basically, when I turned it on, it was like this this computer was starting up and then when i turned the virtual machine off the computer you know was off what i've always kind of wanted to do is i could have you know, we're going to try Ubuntu 16.04. Well, now I can just install 16.04 on this guest, start my virtual guest up, and then go over to my virtual computer and and play around with 16.04. And because it's actually talking directly to the hardware, I don't feel like I'm going to run into a lot of the pitfalls that you do when you're trying to test a distro mm-hmm. in, in a, in a virtual environment. Like it would well, and so speak, just playing off that uh, <clears throat> seven gamers uh one CPU. Worst mm-hmm. case scenario, let's say Jupiter Broadcasting came to the conclusion that the best way to get remote host high fidelity, high definition video that we are happy with on all of the checkboxes, latency, compatibility, ease mm-hmm. of use, audio codec. And let's just say mm-hmm. somehow we said that best combo is Skype and Windows 7. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to take three or four callers. I don't want to have to have three or four Windows 7 physical computers. But right. if I could have one Linux box and then virtualize out those individual Skype machines, I mean, mm-hmm. hell, if you can use it for gaming, you could use it or for whatever the technology is, right? I think right. that's really a fat. I think the, the potential here makes Linux every operating system. That's what I love yeah. about it. And it, it mm-hmm. starts with key technologies that I, I only really recently became familiar with, like the OVMF project. Uh, like uh, some of the recent additions in Linux 3.9 and above. So you, that's another caveat is you need to have a more recent Linux kernel, and even more recent better than that, and a recent build of QMU. But once you have all of these things in place and the right CPU and the right motherboard, which is getting more and more, like the, the ones we bought here appear to all be compatible. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, we, you kind of lucked out because I, I tried it with three different machines that I had. It, it didn't work. I ended up buying a specific motherboard just to just to kind of yeah. get it to work. Yeah. So I'm I'm excited about that. 
Uh, so that is hardware pass-through that we looked at. And remember, you can do some of that, like at least in terms of CPU features, with just using Vert Manager and not a whole bunch of fancy stuff. But if you mm-hmm. want like PCI pass-through, you got to go all, all in. I'm going to also just give a nice mention, uh, something that's just been a total rock-solid performer for us now for years, and that's Proxmox. They've recently had version 4.2 come out. Proxmox is a nice... I think full-on VMware competitive solution with a great graphical interface. You don't have to be a virtualization expert. It works with containers and KVM, which is slick. If you want to use LXC and just put certain things like Plex, what a great container. Great example of something, or MB, when you want to have something that's doing intensive media decoding. You could put that in a virtual machine. We do it here. We run it in a Proxmox virtual machine here on the, uh, in the studio. However, looking back at our setup, I probably should have put that in a container because a container is going to have better performance. And so you could do a work, but a mail server, I'm more likely to put a mail server in its own virtual machine. So what I really like about Proxmox is it gives you a really simple to use graphical front end based on Debian to set that stuff up. And in 4.2, I haven't tried it yet, but my understanding is they've implemented ZFS support which probably is pretty nice to have ZFS support for virtual machines. Uh, so that's something to check out. You know, I'll, t- I'll tell this on to the end. I was just thinking about this. One of the nice things about having, you know, because I have a couple clients that have their entire infrastructure runs on top of this server that we've set up, right? Both the client end and the servers are all running there. And one of the things that I was I was just thinking about that, that has really been beneficial is, you know, when you call the software company for support and they're having a problem with something and they say, okay, well, I need you to sit down at the computer and do this. I'm not going out to the site to do that. In fact, there is zero point in me doing that because... I, I either go out to the site and initiate an SSH connection from my laptop on site, or I sit at my office and initiate an SSH connection from my office. But either way, I'm getting console level access to that screen. And so when they say, well, we need you, you know, TeamViewer isn't going to work because some of the support places use TeamViewer. So I'd be TeamViewering in to TeamViewer in, uh, you know, so, yeah. you know, the, the nice thing is, is it literally when you, when you cloudify, so to speak, you cloud in a good way, not cloud in a butt way. When you cloudify your experience like that, it really enables a, a much wider range of support. And I have a lot more tools at my disposal. Speaking of tools that we didn't mention this week, we didn't mention VMware uh, Workstation or Player. And we didn't really mention VirtualBox. I think both Noah and I have cold a lot over the years on VirtualBox. And I used to even use VirtualBox Server and VirtualBox Headless. And I, I liked that solution because I could build a VM in one spot on my desktop and move it. And I learned pretty well how to do that. But I, I think you probably agree. VirtualBox is just sort of not as competitive as the built-in tools anymore as far as my use goes, at least. Yeah, I mean, the, the part of it is that neither one of us use Win. I mean, we're, it, there was literally when, when, but when we were doing Linux Fest Northwest, we had to program this stupid Logitech receiver. And Chris and I are sitting out of the kitchen. Is like, so you want to go uh, spin up a virtual machine to program the receiver? Yeah, nah, one of those unifying Logitech receivers where you so, yeah, only so has a window. After arguing about ten minutes, where Kai's like, "Fine, give me the receiver. I'll go program." Yeah, that's <laughs> so legit. One of us really want to spin up. You know, so that's the that's the extent that we want to use Windows to begin with. But if you have to do it, there are better tools to, yeah. at this point to, to you know to program your unify Logitech receivers than VirtualBox. So I wanted one more thing. Um, I, I I noticed in the pre-show you didn't mention it in the main show, but you said you had some issues on sixteen. 
for and setting up some of this stuff. Anything? Right. So Vert Manager, uh, and I'm sure it's all going to get worked out. And there's a mile long excuses about how it's upstream, whatever. But the if you tr- all I know is when you install Vert Manager, and I don't want a bunch of emails as to why this is because I'm sure it will get fixed. I'm sure there's a good reason for it. I don't care. <laughs> okay, I got it. Up, well, because everyone's going to tell me why it doesn't work and why I, I should do. understand that. But you know what? At five in the morning, when I'm when when I'm having hardware problems and I just want to record the segment, I really didn't want to deal with this. You when you open up Vert Manager and you try to connect to a virtual host, it gives you a missing package, ask SSH, except when you try to install that package, you can't find that package. And that is as far as I've troubleshot it. I don't really care to troubleshoot any further. I'm sure there's an answer. I just don't care. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. I've I've had experience over the years uh, with dedicated virtual machines and setting it up on the desktop. And I think the the cool thing about where Linux is at now with virtualization, going back, just reflecting on my experience, is mm-hmm. if you just want to use KVM, if what whatever solution you pick, whatever front end solution you pick, if you just use KVM, you can mm-hmm. use the same damn thing on your laptop that you use right. on. On a server like that, like that, like that mm-hmm. high-end entire infrastructures are running on, and there was a point in time where to have access to enterprise-grade virtualization had a barrier of tens of thousands of dollars, and right. I, the only way I could ever get my hands on it was by having a wealthy bank buy the software and need to yeah. be. But today, like you just install Linux and you get one of the world's best virtualizers. Okay, that's and if you think, that's huge. If you're out there and you think to yourself, you're like, yeah, well, the virtual performance won't. You go to any any large Linux conference, yeah, and man. I promise you, mm-hmm. somewhere there will be because those KVM guys, they're they are all about their graphs, and they'll show you like they have to yeah, zoom I've, in. Yeah. They're like, look at these three points that this is behind. <laughs> and KVM is like, I mean, it's and that's what yeah. they're like, right? They, yeah. I mean, they're very very adamant yeah. that you're. Darn near yeah. uh, bare metal performance you can on get, KVM. It's really I've seen that I've good. seen the same exact benchmarks, and you can get super close. And with that PCI pass through stuff, I think you know what we'll do. And this is totally just sort of watching your guys' feedback. If you guys play with some of this stuff, and you do want to see us set up a PCI pass through box and show you full performance Windows gaming on the Linux desktop, let us know. Because to be honest with you, we don't really jump into Windows based topics very much, mm-hmm. and so we're gonna have to get your feedback on that. So either in the YouTube comments, we'll be hosting that how to segment. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe I'll convince Rikai. I don't know. Wouldn't that be great? We'll just yeah. shoot from the beard. And, uh, so uh, leave a YouTube comment or a, or a subreddit comment, linuxactionshow.reddit.com in the feedback thread for 418. If you guys want us to do it, I I feel like if we could come up with a fairly straightforward process for people to follow, and that's a big if, and if you guys know of a better, uh, really straightforward way to get this set up, if we could come up with one, we could we could, I think, help. People who've been aching to make that switch, aching to make that switch. Oh, I don't know about that, man. dude. AutoCAD. I, How many times do you hear AutoCAD? How many times have you heard no, AutoCAD? No, no. I, I, in theory, this is all great, but I, I spent weeks trying to get that to work to an acceptable degree. I'm not, I'm not saying if I can't do it, nobody can. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that if if anything, this is the most convoluted, complicated way to get something to work. This, no, nah, I, don't know see, I, I agree. Unless we can come up with a like Unraid, man, is there? It's checkbox ready with Unraid. I think we could get damn close to that on an implementation of the Linux desktop. And Cherub's come up with other things besides Windows, too. They're saying SteamOS in that virtual machine, all kinds of stuff. Even if, like you were saying, if you just want to run two distros and have true, genuine mm-hmm. hardware experiences with the two different distros, I think mm-hmm. it's worth it, but there's no way we're going to jump into it without a little... Uh, 
encouragement and intro shown because otherwise I think people could just go read the guides themselves and I don't know where people fall down on that. So let us know, leave a comment or like I said, a subreddit message, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Okay, so that's our overview of some of the better virtualization solutions and technologies for Linux. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. Before we get into some great emails and follow-up questions, I want to thank System76, sponsors of the feedback segment. System76 builds machines born to run Ubuntu, designed to run Linux, so that way you don't have to mess with hardware compatibility or fan controller issues or any of that annoying stuff. You just get great hardware. System76.com, they've got laptops and desktops. We talked about some of their laptops recently. Rattel Pro. The Rattel Pro. Just put it out there. The Meerkat is a wicked tiny little machine. The Sable's a cool all-in-one, but the Rattel Pro, you don't understand. This thing, it's not as long as it's like a it's like a it's like a squat little thing. It's like this, it's like this little thing. It's an amazing little rig. And you can start with integrated graphics or go all the way up uh, and add your own uh, card. It's like later the size on. of a Keurig coffee maker. And that's probably a, a, the best description we've ever gotten to, uh, size-wise. Also, the Leopard Workstation, Silverback Workstation, Wild Dog Pro are all sweet desktops built in the US of A, created by System76 and supported. Check them out, system76.com. Just tell them the Linux Action Show sent ya. Okay, Noah. We got an email here, and it came in on the topic of X11 security. Clippy writes in. He says, uh, hey, Chris, love your shows and learning a lot. Can you expand on your comment about X11 being insecure even with current security updates? Do you mean for servers, or is X11 a problem for the desktop user? I'm worried about Lubuntu 16.04, which is running great on my beloved E or triple E PC. Wow. Haven't read one of those in a while with its 8 gigabyte SSD. <gasps> Do you think LXDE is safe for everyday use? Well, I'll answer that last question first. Yes, I think LXDE is perfectly safe for everyday use. Now, unfortunately, my answer about X11 is not so good. I definitely don't think X11 should be on a server if you can avoid it. It's just additional attack surface and security patches you have to keep up to date with. I'm not so worried about X11 if it's on your server security-wise from like a remote hack standpoint, though. It's just something, one more thing you're going to have to keep up to date and patched. Locally, though, X11 has been shown to have just a just a, a ton of issues. And the one that uh, I would point you on, one great blog, uh, the developer of Kwin has written about how screen lockers on X11 can never be truly secure. And he writes about why that is. And this is a great background on that. And then a little more additional reading, if you would like, in the show notes. I'll have this all linked for you. Matthew Garrett wrote a post about circumventing Ubuntu snap confinement, which is what this post is what sort of spurred me to make my comment recently, uh, and he talks about how even with snaps, installing packages in their own containers and being isolated from the rest of the system, because of flaws in X11, you can still break out of these containers and get to the main system. And uh, all of that is uh, kind of outlined in his post. All in all, there's about six, or no, five, five links for you to follow up on about why X11 is just sort of inherently insecure. And one of the better ones is I think the last link in there, which Pharonix did a big like six-page write-up or something on X11 versus Wayland in terms of security and some of the huge improvements there. So if you're, if you're curious, Clippy, you can definitely check it out. But unfortunately, you know, X11 was just sort of designed and created in an era when uh, we didn't really think about all this stuff. And it is a network transparent um, 
sort of system surface that not only has a lot of uh, hooks there, so it is something that could be t- potentially exploited remotely depending on your setup, but it also has a whole bunch of things you can do if you're local on the machine, which is really where it gets kind of scary when you're talking about a laptop or a desktop where somebody could actually be sitting down on your machine. Uh, so check those out, and hopefully that will answer your questions. You want to read Matthew's email? So Matthew writes in, and he asks about Pocket Linux computer. He says, hey, guys, I was listening to you recently uh, on my open Pandora while you were talking about the Dragonbox Pyra. I, th- uh, I thought that was neat. Anyway, <laughs> I, w- I just read at Little Puting that the Nitro Duo could run desktop Linux. The name sounded familiar, so maybe this oh. is old news, but I'm excited to have two potential options after the loss of my N900. I also had an N900, and I also miss it. And then he gives a link to the uh, to to the Nitro. Um, and so, basically, what it looks like is uh, a really fat iPhone kind of a thing. Yeah, or an Android device. In fact, look at that. No, they got it freaking running Windows because it's an x86 Bay Trail processor with 4 gigabytes of RAM, a 256 mm. gigabyte solid-state drive. They've also got a Freescale uh, Quad Arm version with A9 processor, 2 gigs of RAM, and 8 gig SD with an LTE modem in it. That is, it's essentially a mini computer like you want uh, in the size of a smartphone, but it doesn't, I don't think, have a physical keyboard. Right, which kills it for me because I don't want... I have a phone, and I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say I like Android, but it, it's tolerable. But I, I, I don't want. I'm not really don't really care about a touchscreen, and I don't really care about you know small form. I am factor phone size. Boy, it is kind of a big thing, isn't it? It looks like it also though has this dock, which is kind of a cool add-on that adds a whole yeah. bunch of more like uh, USB ports and DisplayPort out and expansion stuff. So that's kind of neat. Yeah, cool. Thanks for sending that in to us. That is a neat-looking rig. There's a lot of cool things. You know, that Pyra or whatever it was, is that how you pronounce it? Pyra, Pyra? Yeah, Pyra. I think they're damn near uh, uh, um, all sold out on their first run. So if you're going to get one, Noah, you better act fast. Did you decide if you're going to pull the trigger on that thing? Yeah, I, I think I am. I just I, I, I went through the checkout process, and I, I, ran, into, I ran into a snafu with their, their uh, yeah, pre-funding thing or whatever. But it, I'm working it out. Yeah, okay. All right. Time. That sounds rough, man. That sounds rough. It sounds rough. <laughs> Linux actually showed up. I was doing it on my phone while we were at a movie, and uh, and about halfway through, <laughs> it probably I, was I yelled at, so I was like, "Well, I'll put it away." Yeah, the screen sitting there blasting. <laughs> yeah. Linux actually showed up. Reddit.com. If you want to submit stories or feedback to this show, JupiterBroadcasting.com/slash/contact. If you want to send us an email or a question, like uh, Eddie and Clippy and uh, others did, Matthew uh, sent into the show. We appreciate those. Linux Action Show is live on Sundays at jblive.tv. Uh, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get it converted to your local time. And if you're a patron, you'll more and more start to see the whole live recording show up for you. Noah, anything else you want to mention or, or uh, give a plug to? Accurate Linux on Twitter. I've been tweeting and arguing with people on the internet. Oh, so, good. Uh, that sounds healthy. At Colonel yeah. Linux, and I'm at Chris LAS. I won't argue with you. I'll just ignore you. Um, and then I'll just give a tease, just a hint. We do have our 10th anniversary coming up very soon. Those of you out there who've been watching for a while may know when that is, but it is nigh. So uh, I'm just putting that out there. I'm just excited about that. I think that's a big deal, and you'll hear more about our plans for that very soon. Okay, everybody, thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show, and we'll see you right back here next week. Since you brought back the LG Watch R, I've have I've had a Android Wear revolution.
Okay. The the uh, you know I, I'll admit they started out right with uh, that update that enabled Wi-Fi legitimately made me much happier and it makes the watch work way more functional because now I don't have to be near my phone. Uh, I can my phone can be upstairs and I can be downstairs and I'm still getting notifications. So that was kind of nice. Also, they improved the battery life. So if I don't put it on the charger, I'm still getting about two and a half days of battery life out of it. Which is pretty awesome considering the Watch R has got to be over a year old now. So the fact that the battery got improved is that just put me in a good mood about it. And then I kept trying to rack my brain like, what could I do? Because uh, I, otherwise, it's just one more thing that buzzes, one more thing that notifies me, and one more thing that dings when I'm getting messages during a show. And that I was starting to think, I don't think wearables are ever going to work for me. I don't need another thing to tell me about a Telegram message. Right. And then. And then I had a flip of, I don't know why I didn't, I'm, I'm a dummy, dude. And maybe it's because I'm lazy. I think it's because I'm lazy and I'm dumb. I think I'm lazy and dumb and that's why I didn't think of this. Because I think anybody else would have thought of this ahead of me. And that was the trick to, to Android Wear, or probably just a wearable, it could be a Pebble or the Apple Watch, is turn off notifications everywhere. Every single place, turn them off everywhere except for on your phone. Then leave notifications on on your phone that you want. And then in the Android Wear settings, there's one checkbox, just one thing you check that says, when Android Wear is connected to my phone, disable all notifications on phone and only send them to the watch. So oh. the only thing out of all my computers now that buzzes or beeps or shows a preview is my watch. And so even if like I'm chatting on the computer, I get the notification on my watch. And that is, so it's now, and then when I don't want notifications, yeah. take the watch off. And then the phone's yeah. muted all the time anyways. So I take yeah. the watch off, I'm not getting any notifications, but the watch on, I'm getting notifications. Nice. That, that was a little mental... That's convergence. Yeah, that was the mental gymnastics I did. And now, now I'm all about it. Now I love it. Now I'm, now I'm back into sleep tracking. And now sleep tracking can freaking track your heart rate. So now it tracks my noise, my snoring, my, uh, my movement, and the heart rate, the temperature of the room, the temperature outside. If it was raining heavily, which you would think, why would you track that? Except for I live in an RV. And because I live in an RV, the roof is right there. And I can hear the rain, which is actually quite nice. But it tracks right. loud rain. Like all that stuff puts it all out on a chart for me and tells me what's up. So I'm yeah I'm all back in I'm still using and I got this I got this live case on the Nexus 5X here which is a total ripoff and don't anybody do it it's stupid but what you do is you can put any image you want or any map location so I put a map of like LaConnor where I where I live and our where our, uh, where the rigs parked but uh, yeah so I got I'm still liking the 5X still good nice slow nice. as hell but it's good um, I have run into a food problem uh oh the beard has fundamentally screwed me. Because he got me addicted to this pizza that no longer exists. Sriracha, you, you remember that it. sriracha pizza yep, he used yep. to order? Mm -hmm, yeah. Yep. You remember how it was amazing and made your taste buds dance? Why not? Now, do you think you could get close to the pizza? So, really, you could remake that pizza, Noah. Because uh, it, it didn't use, it still used like a traditional tomato sauce, right? It didn't have like a sriracha. Yeah, but they somehow they got it like into the crust, like it was part of the crust. Hmm. Well, so anyway, so I have I have since been trying to search for ways that I could like substitute yeah. th that and get my sriracha fill, and so I have found that omelets work pretty well. But now I just I keep using more and more and more sriracha, and I'm going through like a bottle. Last night I did sriracha burgers. Like I was I was like I need a burger. I need some flavor to this burger. Sriracha. That's a good way to go. That's a good way yeah, to go. There's some places around. You know, there's like lots of kinds of sriracha. There's a place right here that has a whole bunch of different kind. I'm very upset that I that feel pizza, like Pizza Hut, you screwed me. I feel like you could get 
back there again if you came up with just the right sriracha dip. And then you dip the crust yeah. of the pizza in the sriracha dip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd have to be like a, it'd have to be like a, like a garlic butter uh, Yeah, man, base. that's exactly what I was thinking. What about sriracha and ranch? Is that crazy? I know red and white seems weird sometimes, but like no, sometimes... No, because they have a spicy ranch. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Just really upset with pizza. Put it pizza out there, put it out there. I'm just putting it out there. Although, now... See, Rikai doesn't like it, but last night I got their pizza double onions, which is great. And the crust is cheese stuffed bacon. So it's bacon and cheese. Hmm. Now it's just bacon bits, but it's bacon and cheese. And then I got them to brush it with the garlic butter. So the outside of the crust has got the garlic butter on it. The inside of the crust has got the cheese and bacon. (laughs) Now if I was dipping that in some sriracha sauce... My face would have blown off. That'd have been so damn good. No, mm. I, I'm, 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 with, too. I'm with Rick. I don't personally like ranch, but um, yeah. Well, for me, I don't like 90% of ranch out there. There's only 10% of ranch I like. It's really, really, really limited. I don't like any ranch out of a bottle. Pretty much.